to the Corinthian church, Paul's facing an elephant. Okay, There are lots of different issues that are taking place in this church. Lots of different problems that need to be addressed. Some of the people in the church are still worshipping pagan idols. Right, They're still participating in pagan worship. Some of the people in the church have a real issue with sexual ethics. They don't understand what God has asked them to do with their bodies. And so they're, they're sinning in that way. Some of the people don't even understand the resurrection or they, they believe wrong things about it. And that's kind of crucial core to Christianity. So when faced with all of that, where would you start? Which issue would you begin to address first? And I'm going to submit that Paul actually doesn't start where we would start, right? Paul doesn't address the problem, uh, probably even the most visible problem, the problem that we would address wherever we would start, whatever our tendencies are. Paul doesn't go after the thing first, at least that we think he might go after. Paul actually begins with their unity. Paul actually, it seems to be clear from this letter that unity is the real, uh, that disunity is the real problem underlying all of the other issues going on in the Corinthian church. Now, you and I may not consider that all that important, right? Uh, you know, we'll get along, we'll, we'll get by, but man, these other issues, that's what's really important. Paul actually goes after their togetherness. And this is what we saw last week, right? That, that there are actually groups in the church who are beginning to try and tear the church apart. They've rallied around certain leaders, right? They've said, I'm with Paul, or I'm with Apollos, or I'm with Peter, Right? They've rallied themselves around these different celebrity pastors, these different celebrity preachers, and, and they're beginning to tear the fabric of the church apart. And that's the problem that Paul's, Paul deals with first. Now the question is, how would you deal with that? Right? When my kids don't get along, we just scold them and tell them to work it out. But Paul doesn't do that necessarily. Right? Paul actually takes them to the cross. In order to heal their disunity, in order to heal the tears that they're causing in the church, he takes them back to the cross. He takes them back to the good news of what Jesus did at the cross. And so that's where we're going to go. That's what we're going to see today. So we're going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 18. We're going to read verses 18 through 31. Actually, I'm going to back up and I'm going to read verse 17, but we'll spend all of our time looking at verses 18 through 31. Paul says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom... It pleased God through the folly of preaching to save those who believe. 
For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Consider your own calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being, no flesh, might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord." The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. God in heaven, we desperately need your help. We need your help to understand this word. We need your help to believe it. We need your help to apply it. Father, like our forebearers, like our brothers and sisters in Corinth, We are prone to division. Our culture, even right now, seems to be tearing itself apart as people factionalize over almost every issue. So, Lord, I pray that you would use your word by the power of your Holy Spirit to unite us in the unlikeliest of places. To bind your people, your church, together at a moment when our culture desperately needs to see people of different colors, of different races, of different classes bound together. But would you help us to see that it's not where we think? And would you help us to be one in Christ crucified? Help me to preach, Lord. Help me to give the true sense of these words. God, whatever is of my opinion, I pray that you would blow it away like dust in the wind. But God, whatever is of you would find purchase in our souls, in our hearts, and then it would grow like a seed and produce great amounts of fruit. We humbly ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. What we're going to see today is that the cross is what we call, and Christianity ought to be, what we call counterintuitive, right? That means it, it works against the way that we typically think, right? The, way, the things that we usually boast and glory in, what Paul is saying is, is God has actually put those things to shame and put our glory in something that's altogether counterintuitive, altogether different from that. Right? So what we're going to see is that the cross 
thwarts human wisdom and power so that we will boast in Christ alone. So the things that we think are great, the the ways that we try to earn our keep, so to speak, before God, the cross actually says, no, those aren't any good. Your hope is over here. Right. So that's that's hopefully what you're going to see today. And the first thing we're going to see is that the message of the cross frustrates human pride. The message of the cross frustrates human pride. Just look at what Paul says in verse 18. He says, the word of the cross, the message about the cross is folly. The word is uh, moria. It's where we get our word moron from. He says the cross is moronic to those who are perishing. The cross is, the cross, we could say this, is absolutely stupid uh, to the people, uh, to people outside of the church, right? To those who are perishing, the cross looks like total stupidity. Why does Paul say that? Well, think about the things that we typically celebrate, right? Think about the things that we typically boast in or celebrate and how different the cross is. Uh, we recently had the opportunity to see uh, The Greatest Showman. Good movie. I recommend it to you. I realize I'm a little bit behind the time. I have three kids, so, you know, bear with me. Right? And this, this song, uh, this song here just absolutely captivated me because I think it captures, I think it captures the human heart so well. Right? All the shine of a thousand spotlights. All the stars that we steal from the night sky will never be enough. Never be enough. Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it'll never be enough. Never be enough. That movie, which is about sort of P.T. Barnum, uh, Barnum hears those words being sung, but he actually, the first time he hears them, he hears that as a promise, right? As a dream to chase. You can see it in his face. He's, he's so enamored by this vision, right? That he just wants to keep chasing prestige and fame and glory. And he's happy to use whoever he can to get there. He wants a good reputation. He wants a good name. He wants to be the greatest showman. But by the end of the movie or towards the end, uh, when we hear those words again, Barnum realizes that they weren't a promise of more. They were actually a guarantee of emptiness. All the shine of a thousand spotlights is never enough. All the stars that we do, in fact, try to steal, never enough. Towers of gold, too little. As capable as our hands are, they will never be enough. But that's what we boast in, right? You see it, Paul uses two words over and over again in this text. He talks about power and he talks about wisdom. Look at verse 22. He says, Jews demand signs. So you need to know that the reason Paul brings up Jews and Greeks is because that's the kind of people who are in this church. Okay? Uh, there were Jewish people in the church and there were Gentile Greek people in the church. Okay? And uh, they panted after, thirsted after different things. As Jews demand signs... The Jews were expecting signs of miraculous power, right? They were waiting on their Messiah. 
And so what they expected was that when the Messiah showed up, he would do these amazing miracles that flexed his muscle and defeated the Romans and brought them to glory once again, right? Think Red Sea. That's what they were looking for. They were looking for those kinds of miracles. They were looking for power. They were looking for human strength. They were looking for might. Greeks, on the other hand, he says, seek wisdom. We know that, that Greek culture was kind of the, uh, the center, maybe not the beginning of human learning, certainly not the beginning of human learning, but Greek culture was famous for philosophy. Think Socrates, think Aristotle. It was famous for these great thinkers who figured the world out, or at least tried to figure the world out through human intellect. That's what Greeks prized. And even the city of Corinth, a Corinth was a lot like the United States, right? It's, it's values were how much can you make for yourself? It was a, it was a city primarily made up of slaves, former slaves, immigrants. It was a crossroads. So nobody was actually from Corinth, kind of like nobody in Grace Fellowship is actually from Clanton, right? Uh, nobody was from there, but everybody was trying to make themselves something there, right? This, this place was a place of promise. It was a place obsessed with power, uh, obsessed with wisdom, obsessed with money, obsessed with sex, right? That was Corinth. And Paul comes into that place obsessed with power and wisdom, obsessed with power and intellect, and he preaches a message about a crucified man named Jesus. Now, just so you know how how off-putting that would have been. It doesn't sound strange to us. We have to kind of go back to their way of thinking. You didn't mention crucifixion in polite company, right? Nowadays, we, we put crosses everywhere, right? We put them on our church buildings. We hang them around our necks. We tattoo them into our skin. But if you had done that in first century Corinth, uh, you would have been laughed out of town, right? Or actually, they wouldn't have even laughed. They just would have been disgusted with you, right? Because... Crucifixion was a torturous, painful, shameful way to die. It was, it was reserved for the lowest of criminals. And even if, if you were a Roman citizen, you could not be crucified. So it was, it was reserved for other people. It was reserved to shame the other cultures that were a part of the Roman Empire into being quiet, right? Don't uprise against the Romans or you will be crucified. And we know from ancient literature that, that you didn't talk about crucifixion, right? That was not something you mentioned in polite company, much the way we might think about uh, a pedophile today, right? You didn't, you didn't talk about being crucified. That was shameful. That was gross. That was disgusting. In other words, it was the exact opposite of everything the Corinthians were looking for. To be crucified was the exact opposite of power. Because it meant that you were defeated. It meant that you were crushed. And to, and to have God be crucified was the exact opposite of wisdom. No smart person would ever end up on a cross. No, what the cross says is that you actually win by dying. And that just doesn't compute, does it? I mean, think about the things that we glory in, the things that we boast in. What do we celebrate? Certainly not death, certainly not weakness, certainly not shame. 
And yet Paul says that's the very message of the cross. And it seems really foolish to people who are perishing. But it's actually the power of God to save. Because it's through the cross, it's through weakness and death that we actually come to know God. Look again at our text. Paul quotes from the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament. He says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. What he's saying is that in an attempt to use human wisdom or human strength to get to God, God actually says, nope. You're not going to get there by your own achievement. You're not going to get there by your own means. And that's what that's what the believers in Corinth were beginning to do as they split into groups. They were actually rallying around achievers, right? They were rallying around Paul or they were rallying around Peter, these different these different men of different giftedness. It's not too far off from what uh, I had a friend in college uh, at Alabama who uh, he would pay to get into the game. And, of course, this was uh, before St. Nicholas came to uh, Tuscaloosa and we won on a regular basis. Um, what would happen is this guy, this guy would get so angry, right? His identity was so wrapped up in Alabama football that if Alabama was playing it too close or, worse yet, losing, he would actually leave the game. I mean, like, second quarter, leave the game. So he paid whatever ridiculous amount you pay to get into an Alabama football game, but he could not stand to see them do poorly, and so he would leave and go back out to his tailgate and just wait. Why? Because he was attaching himself to that power, right? In his, that, that, was the, that was the idol of strength and power that he was identifying with, and it was too much for him to see it shame, so he, so he would withdraw, Right? We do the same thing, right? It's, it's when people say, you know, after, after a football game, for instance, you'll go up to an Alabama fan or an Auburn fan, because they sometimes win too. You'll go up to them and say, hey, you guys did a really good job last night. You ever thought about why that's such a curious thing to say? I didn't do jack squat last night. In fact, I caught, you know, five minutes of the game, right? I don't have anything to do with it. But we do that, right? We, we attach ourselves to uh, people who either have the power or have the smarts that we wish we had. And that's what they're doing in Corinth. They're, they're using human achievement uh, to make a name for themselves. We do the same thing. We glory in human achievement. But Paul says we preach Christ crucified. Christ crucified. We preach that the King of heaven allowed himself to be beaten, mocked, whipped, scorned, bloodied, naked, hung on a pole. That's what we preach. How foolish. Paul even says it's a, it's a stumbling block to Jews. The word is where we get our word scandal from. It was scandalous to the Jews to think that their Messiah, that God himself would be beaten like that. That their Messiah would be bruised and mocked and hung on a pole by the hated Romans. That was, that was a scandal to them. They couldn't believe it. And as for the Greeks, Paul says, Christ crucified is folly. It's foolishness. Who in the world would ever make that message up? That the way to win, the way to to be rescued is to die? 
foolishness, moronic. But, Paul says, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Isn't that interesting? God, even at His most foolish, that's almost that's a dangerous word to use when talking about God, but he says God's foolishness, even at His most foolish, He's actually still wiser than the best human intellect. And even at the moment when God is at His weakest, He's still stronger than the greatest human strength. That's what actually the cross is, right? It's so counterintuitive, it trumps what we think would save, and it saves. It trumps what we think is good, what we boast in and glory in, human achievement. And it says you can't achieve this. You can't save yourself. That's really why the cross is so offensive to us. That's why we call it moronic and foolish. It's offensive to our way of thinking and living. It's contrary to everything we hold most dear. It's so unbelievable that we try to change the story. All of the early heresies uh, that propped up in the early church focused on this point, right? That people could not believe that God would allow Himself to do this. And so they tried to, they tried to monkey with it a little bit and change it and say, well, uh, Jesus wasn't really God. Or Jesus wasn't really man. There's no way that God would allow Himself to become one with man. And certainly, right, there were some who said, well, when it came to the cross, Jesus actually, uh, the spirit of Jesus was withdrawn from the man Jesus who was on the cross because God couldn't allow himself to be crucified. You know, we still do that. That's what, uh, that's what modern heresies, that's what modern cults do today. Uh, the uh, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, they deny that Jesus is the Son of God. Why? Because God can't allow himself to be crucified, can he? Uh, this is what, uh, just to use as an example, this is, this is what Islam teaches. That God would never allow himself to be blasphemed in this way. And so that Jesus was not actually crucified. See, it's so hard to believe we want to change the story. We want to rewrite it and say, no, 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 it can't mean that. It can't be that. But Paul says, it absolutely is that. The cross is absolutely as shameful and weak and foolish as it looks. And when you believe it, it's what saves you. Because everything else is human achievement. Everything else is trusting in the power or the mind of man to save. And the power and mind of man cannot break you free from sin. Look, Paul is not opposed to human intellect. We have accomplished great things. We have done great things with our strength. We have done great things with our minds. I believe it's what, it, what sets us apart uh, from the rest of creation. We have a mind. We can build and create amazing things. A few uh, months ago, we went to the Space and Rocket Center with our kids. I mean, it's like a temple to what we can accomplish. It is absolutely amazing. But has it solved the problem of the human heart? Has it answered the one nagging emptiness you continue to feel? With medical technology, we can live longer than we ever have. I was reading a stat recently that, uh, let's see, 
of women no longer die in childbirth. And over 90% of children no longer die at birth. It's remarkable what we have accomplished. And yet it falls short, doesn't it? We'll never be enough. We'll never be enough. And so God has to work another way. He has to work in a, in a wisdom and a power that are beyond human understanding. He has to do it in the cross. He has to do it through the cross. And I want to, just as we try to apply how this, why this matters for life as a church, let, let me come back to the example of Islam, okay? And how, how differently Islam and Christianity and I mean the, and, I, and I'm going to refer to the purest forms of those, the ones who adhere most closely to their religious text. So I'm not trying to paint broad brush and say everybody who names themselves a Muslim or names themselves a Christian. I just want to go with those who stick the closest to their religious text, okay? And, and give you an example of how they see the world. Uh, for Islam, weakness is something to be conquered, Right? It is why Jesus could not be crucified, because the Son of God cannot be crucified. So weakness is something to be conquered, and everybody who will not bow the knee to Allah must either be subjugated or killed. Right? So I, I know that we also have this period called the Crusades. I'm going to call that not biblical Christianity. Okay, again, I'm just going with what relates to the religious text of both groups. Islam, Islam's view of power and glory say that the world must be conquered by the sword. In modern day, the suicide bomb. Okay? But what about a theology of the cross? What does that do for the way that you see the world? What is, it, what is a view of suffering and weakness uh, at the very center of Christianity? What does that have to do for the way you see the world? Uh, it doesn't have to be conquered through the point of a sword. Rather, it is overcome by bowing the knee. Uh, weakness is not something to be put down. It's something to be embraced. A suffering is not some part of, uh, of an ungodly worldview. It's actually part of a fallen world in which we learn more and more to be like Jesus. For a theology of glory... You do whatever you can to purge the world of everything that doesn't fit your script. But for a theology of the cross, you acknowledge that salvation doesn't come from you and you don't have to force anybody into believing what you believe, even threatening them with death. Instead, you bow the knee to the crucified and risen King. It changes the way you see the world. It changes the way you understand conversion. It changes the way we see each other. So the message of the cross frustrates human pride. And that's why it brings unity. Right? They were rallying around their pride, what they valued most. Apollos is a great speaker. He has a great, uh, he has a great speaking voice, so I'm with him. Ah, Peter's Jewish, so I'm with him. And the cross says, No. No, both of you, both of you need to be crucified. Both of, everyone is guilty before the Lord. 
And so we both bow the knee before the cross. So the message of the cross frustrates human pride. The people of the cross overturn the standards of the world. I want you to look at uh, Paul uses their example in verse 26. So he's been talking about how the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. God's folly, in a sense, is better than man's wisdom. And then he uses them as an example, right? He says, consider your calling, brothers. Now, calling here doesn't mean your job or your vocation the way we mean it. He's talking about their salvation. He's saying, consider the moment when you were called by God out of sin into salvation, I want you to notice who the emphasis is on there. It's not on them, it's on God. Consider the moment when you were converted. Right? He says, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Literally, according to the flesh. Not many of you were wise, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. How do we usually esteem people? Right? Even in the good old U.S. of A., where... We don't have a caste system like India. Uh, we don't have a monarchy like other countries, right? Everybody starts at square one, right? So we say. Uh, but what, who are the people we value the most? We value smart people, right? We value strong people. What is the uh, highest grossing, I think it's the highest grossing industry. At least it's the highest grossing form of entertainment. Football, Right? And those guys can do some really impressive things with their bodies. What those, uh, what those guys can do on a field is impressive. Those are, we value that. Not many of you are of noble birth, right? As much as we would like to think that we don't prize uh, nobility or someone's station in life, we do, right? We prize people who come from a good family. We prize people who have a good name. But Paul says, you know what? Not many of you were like that. Paul says this church that, uh, that this this church is actually built not on the wise, the strong, and the noble. It's built on the riffraff. Now, some of them may have been wise, noble, or strong, but most of them were not. But Paul says, so God has used you, your low station in life, and He is He's used you as an example of what is possible by His grace, right? To overturn what the word, world considers valuable. He says in verse 27, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Not many of you are wise. That's okay. God uses fools to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not. Right? You're talking about people. People who are considered nothing. Right? The, uh, the opposite of, uh, like, we could probably say the truest form of hatred is actually indifference. Right? You want to know if you actually despise somebody? It's because it's when you don't see them at all when you don't even know they exist. Paul says, God has chosen those people. The people that society doesn't even notice they exist. Things that are not. 
to put to shame those that are. This gospel that makes something out of nothing. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? Why would God do that? Why does the message of the cross frustrate human pride? Why do the people of the cross overturn worldly standards? What's God after? Paul tells us in verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The gospel humbles man and elevates God. The glory, the glory of the cross, as odd as it may seem, as counterintuitive as it may seem, actually leads us to our best boast, to our highest joy. In fact, we won't know glory and joy until we come to God through the cross. Until we're humbled by the cross, we will not know true joy. Did you notice a repeated phrase in that passage? God chose. God chose. God chose. God is the one at work in human salvation. We are not the first actor. God is. So that He might get the glory. And then verse 30, because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. It is God's doing. God has taken you and placed you into His Son. You are in union with Him. And as a result, let's look at what we have in verse 30. You are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. True wisdom is found in Christ. There is much knowledge in the world, and that knowledge can do amazing things. But outside of the wisdom found in Christ, humanity will always fall short. We have seen more technological innovation in the 20th century uh, and 20, in the 20th century onward than at any point in our history. And we have also seen more bloodshed in the 20th century and beyond. Our learning alone will not save us. True wisdom comes from Christ. You are in Christ. You have righteousness. That means that in Christ, when you stand before the throne of God, He looks at you and He sees His Son. You are justified. You hear not guilty. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church. He says this about Jesus. This is the message of the cross right here. If you don't hear anything else, hear this. God made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that we would become the righteousness of God. That's the message of the cross. God made Jesus to be sin in your place so that you could take his place before the throne. So that when God looks at you, he says, not guilty. He calls you son. He calls you daughter. And that's not all. Christ Jesus is our sanctification. He is our holiness. That means the way that we grow to be more like God comes from God through Jesus. 
It's not as if Jesus breaks us even and then it's up to us to attain from there. No, that would be going back to human strength and human intellect. God says, no, 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 no. That's not how this works. Jesus is your holiness too and your redemption. You are set free from sin in Jesus. That word redemption would have meant a lot in Corinth. Like I said, there are a lot of slaves and former slaves. The world economy has been built on the back of slavery for a very long time. Okay? Uh, And in Corinth, uh, there were slaves and there were former slaves. And to get out of slavery, you had to be redeemed. That meant someone had to pay a price to release you from slavery. Paul takes that word and he applies it to what Jesus has done. You have been set free from sin. You are redeemed. Jesus paid the debt. Right? Jesus paid the price for you. Why? So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Look, the only way that we're going to be unified, the only way that we're going to bind together as a church, and really the only message of hope we have for a divisive culture, is if we come back to the cross. If we see that the message of the cross is foolishness, is weakness, and yet it's the only way to unity. Because at the cross, we acknowledge that I got nothing. Look, I got a master's degree. I've spent more money and more hours on formal education than I probably should. Right? I got letters. But when it comes to knowing God, nothing. Some of you have strength, right? Biceps the size of grapefruits. Before God, nothing. In a world that prizes power and intellect, in a world that prizes human achievement, the cross says, you got nothing. The message of the cross says, turn away from all that and turn to Jesus. Come to the crucified one. Cling to Him. There is your life. There is your justification. There is your holiness. There is your forgiveness. Human achievement might buy you accolades with men, but it will never be enough with God. In fact, God has done what we could not do in the cross. I began with one song, the song of Never never Enough. I want to close with another song. It's called Mystery of Mercy. I am the woman at the well. I am the harlot. I am the scattered seed that fell along the path. I am the son that ran away. I am the bitter son who stayed. My God, my God, why hast thou accepted me? When all my love was vinegar to a thirsty king. My God, my God, why hast thou accepted me? It's a mystery of mercy and the song that I sing. I am the angry man who came to stone the lover. I am the woman there ashamed before the crowd. I am the leper that gave thanks. And the nine that never came. 
My God, my God, why hast thou accepted me when all my love was vinegar to a thirsty king? My God, my God, why hast thou accepted me? It's a mystery of mercy and a song that I sing. Turn away from human achievement. Rejoice in the mystery of mercy that is the cross. And you will know life and fullness. Let's pray. God in heaven, oh Lord, that we would that we would agree, as Paul says, that we would look at the factions forming around us, that we would look at the pride in our own hearts, and we would remember the cross. That we would, rem- we would remember what it says about us. That we are those about whom Jesus said, forgive them. They know not what they do. Oh God, grant us humility in the cross. And then help us, Lord, to live the values of the cross. That we would not stand on our gifts, whether they be intellect or strength or whatever form of human achievement we boast the most in. May we see our Savior and say, I got nothing. Nothing but Christ. Nothing but Christ alone. It is You who calls us, Lord. It is You who chose the weak to shame the strong, the the foolish to shame the wise. That at the end of the day, Though there may be comfort and health to find in material prosperity, it will not save us from ourselves. Only you can do that. And you have done it through the cross. Would you apply that to our hearts? Help us to believe it and to live it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.